Romans chapter 10, and I warned you last week, I'm going to warn you again, which one, congratulations, you survived. It wasn't that bad, was it? See, no, it wasn't that bad. Could have been worse. We will slow down a little bit this week and next week with smaller sections, and then we are tackling all of 11 on the uh, Sunday after that, just simply because, again, like chapter 9, there's no good place to break that, so we're just going to have to tackle it all the way through. The warning that I'm giving you, though, is you don't get to forget chapter 9. You don't get to forget chapter 10 when we get to chapter 11. You need this. You can't make sense of the argument Paul's going to make in chapter 11 if you have completely forgotten chapters 10 and chapters 9. And by the way, you can't make any sense of chapters 10 and chapters 9 if you have forgotten chapters 1 through 8. I know I've warned you this until you're sick of hearing me say this, but this is a letter. This is a free flow thought. And Lord knows when it comes to Romans, Paul is the king of the free flow thought. Do you remember the seven verse sentences that we had back in chapter 1? So, I mean... This is, this is the place where you can't just forget what happened in 2, 3, 7, whatever, when you get through. Because I've, I told you this last week, I'll remind you of again, probably every Sunday until we get there. When you get to chapter 12, and it's the verses everybody has memorized about renewing your heart and mind, remember that the first, verse, the first word of chapter 12 is, therefore. The therefore is chapters 1 through 11. So you need all of this in order to know what to apply, which is, again, another little warning about your Bible. You want to apply biblical truth. Your starting point is, wait for it, knowing biblical truth. You can't apply what you don't actually know. This is one of the reasons why we go through the Bible the way that we do and do what we do so that you will actually know something. So what do we know thus far before we dive into chapter 10? Sin corrupts all people, even ethnic Israel who was in possession of the law. God saves by grace, through faith, in Christ. That's it. This has always been true. If you don't believe me, go read up on Adam and Abraham. Those are Paul's examples. This is how the gospel has always been accomplished. And that means because it is the work of God and not the work of people that we are secure in our faith because we are God's people. This is the argument of chapter 7 and of chapter 9. And this is true because of the work of God and not because of us. This is also the arguments of chapter 7, 8, and 9. And we have the world's largest rat somewhere jiggling something. Or is I the only one that heard that? <laughs> So anyway, if you've ever had a rat in the walls, it makes that same scraping sound. And so I was like, what is that? So anyway, this week then, well, Paul, if Israel had the law and Israel was the inheritor of the promise and Israel was the ones that should have been the people standing at the end of history and God is the one who is running all of these things, then, then why has it gone the way that it has gone? I'm so glad you asked him that question. You know who else is glad you asked that question? Paul is, because it gives him a justification to write chapter 10. Shall we? All right, let's dive in. Verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Okay, remember who they are. This is, I won't make the joke. I will behave myself. So this is Paul talking about ethnic Israel. If you go back to chapter 9, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. We will build on that in just a minute, so we're going to leave that alone for just a second. Now, the better question would be, Paul, why do you care? John, this is the will of my Father, this is what Jesus told the crowds, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. What's Paul's job? 
Like, what if you're going to give Paul a job description? What's the title on the job description? Apostle. So what is, his, what is his main job? To be a witness to the work and realities of Christ. To which people? Yes. Yes. Always remember, this is why Paul was so perfectly situated. He's from Tarsus. He's from this metropolitan university town. He is, though, a Pharisee of Pharisees, an expert in the law, and would be one of the people arguing with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Holy Spirit knocks him off his horse, and no, I know it doesn't say that in Acts 9, but I just how I picture it, and I'm stuck picturing it that way, and now you are too, so you're welcome. So he's blinded, understands now who Christ is, and suddenly all of that law All of that history is taken and put into right perspective with a fulfillment in Christ. You're then sent out to the Gentiles because what do the Jews keep doing to Paul every time he stops someplace in a city to talk to them? Anybody remember their history? Yeah, They don't just reject Paul's message. They are actively trying to kill him and not like politely either. But one of my, one of my favorite little things in Acts, it's like a little throwaway is they drag Paul outside the city and stone him. And you know, you know, when you stone people, you know, when you leave them, right? Because you're convinced that they're dead. So there's the carcass of Paul laying down there. They're like, okay, I think that's good. And they all leave. And then Paul gets up, dusts himself off. Now, if I were Paul and the people in the city had just stoned me what they thought was to death and I have miraculously survived, you know what I'm doing now? I'm already outside the city. All the people throwing the rocks at me are inside the city. I think I'm going to go away now. Paul's like, well, time to go back inside and do that again. What is wrong with you, man? So, I mean, Paul has stubbornness, like to 11. And that's a good thing because the Jews are rejecting, they're trying to kill him, but the Gentiles are receiving and they're learning and they're growing. But that doesn't mean you stop dealing with all of people, especially the people that you have grown up with, the people that should know the law, the people that should get this, and the people who are still crazy enough to invite you into the synagogue to let you teach on it. I mean, if they're going to let you come in and teach, you know what the answer to that is. As someone who has been invited to places to come and teach, you know what the answer to that is? Yes. Yes, I am very, very careful about who I invite here. I will go anywhere. (laughs) You want to come talk? Absolutely. Can I say whatever I want? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's Paul. Bring him into the synagogue. Here's the scroll of Isaiah. Thank you. I'll be taking that. And here we go. Let's talk about Jesus. That's, that's Paul. So this is why he cares. This is his job. This is the burden that the Holy Spirit has placed upon him. This is Jeremiah in action. I would like to not speak, but you know, bones burning, can't keep it in, got to gonna explode. So verse two, for I testify about them, ethnic Israel, that they have a zeal for God. Now we're going to pause real quick. I know you can see the rest of it on the board, but this really, really matters because Really, really meaning it doesn't save anybody. Okay, and this is part of the lie of the modern world and part of why I love parts of the Bible like this. Because you can write this nearly 2,000 years ago and then you fast forward and you give people iPhones and you go, you know, at the end of the day, people haven't changed any. See, it doesn't matter how zealously you believe something. doesn't matter how much you want it to be true. It either is or it isn't. And I've used this example before. I'm going to do it again. I can want it to be 75 and sunny outside all I want. If I go get an umbrella and put on my bathing suit and go outside, bad things will happen to me. Why? Because no matter how much I want it to be 75 and sunny, it isn't. And reality is undefeated. You can have zeal for God all you want, If it is a wrong zeal, it is not accomplishing anything. And this connects back to some of the things that the other apostles have taught, things like 1 Peter 2. 
Coming to him, talking about Jesus, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. If I really, 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 really believe a lie, still a lie. And that's one of the reasons you get the warnings that you get in scripture and why I joke with you about like the throwing things and running screaming from the room, but that's actually an important part of Christian living. Um, Galatians 1. What does Paul tell the Galatian church? If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he has to be accursed. As we have said before, so again I say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And by the way, I joke about the throwing things, but it is the biblical standard, just so you know. So Deuteronomy, if a prophet comes to you and it turns out the thing that he prophesied is not true, what do you do, Israel? You stone him. You take him outside the camp and you stone him to death. Now, what if the thing that he prophesied did come true and you go, ooh, it's a prophet, but then he looks at you and says, we should now worship other gods. Outside the city gates, throwing the big heavy rocks again. That's how this game is played. That's how it is always supposed to be played. I know you don't get to stone people, much to the disappointment of some of you, and though some of you are very bad people, just so you know. However, rhetorically, you should be ready to throw stones. I've told you this before, Christianity is a thinking religion. You have to be paying attention. You do not go willy-nilly. I mean, for crying out loud, how many times have we done this? You don't go willy-nilly in life. What are all the examples? You're compared to a tree. What is a tree? Trees just float around out in the woods, right? One day it's over here. One day it's over there. I mean, you never know about those oak trees. They're sneaky. No, I mean, for crying out loud, my father-in-law will still, to this day, give you directions based on trees that were cut down when he was a child. <laughs> You go down to where the oak tree used to be. Wait a minute. Time out. When did the oak tree used to be there? Hmm, 68. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I've actually looked at him before. You do know that that was gone 15 years before I was born, right? He's like, hmm, okay, here's what you do. I mean, yeah, trees are the example of the Christian because they don't move around. You're supposed to be like an anchor. I don't know about you, but when I'm out on a boat and I put an anchor down, you know what I wanted to do? stay there. I don't want the anchor to go sneaking off somewhere. I don't want it to be like, I got an idea. Watch this. <laughs> He'll never suspect anything. That would be bad. Anchors are supposed to stay put. Trees are supposed to stay put. These are the examples given to the Christian because what are you supposed to do? You are supposed to be anchored to the truth. You are supposed to be rooted in Christ and built up so that the winds and waves and the doctrines of this world do not pull you astray so that you will be firm in your convictions as they are biblical. Now, that requires you to do what about the wind and the waves? You have to look at them and say what? I am not following that. Why aren't you following that? Well, you see right here, see, see this is what it contradicts and this is how it's leading me astray and this is where it's not honoring to Christ and this is all the reasons why we're not doing that thing. Which means, again, in order to apply biblical wisdom, I have to first have biblical wisdom.
I have to know who Christ is, who I am in light of who Christ is and why that matters. This is your job as a Christian. This is step one in discipleship. I've always told you, your discipleship journey begins where? At home with who? You, you, you are your first mission. Strengthening, building up so that you can lead, so that you can make disciples. Now, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Why not? This is part of where things go off the rails. If you, we've done this in Sunday school, and I don't have, we don't really have time to go into it a bunch here, but just let me put it this way. The Israel of Paul's day, similar to the Israel of Jesus's day, would have been one steeped in about, give or take, 500 years of bad rabbinical teaching. That's a lot. I mean, that's, that's a lot. I mean, just try, I, we can't even function like this as, as Americans. We haven't been here that long. <laughs> Realize that 500 years is longer than we've been a country. I mean, imagine if someone, and, and this is one of the rules, right? I've told you this before. If someone shows up and they're the first person in 2,000 years to have discovered something about the Bible. What are they? Wrong. Like, not everyone who came before you was a doofus. Not everyone who came before you could not understand and figure things out. So if, you're, if you've got some novel interpretation on the book of Romans and no one else in church history has ever come up with it, no, get out. We're not listening. Not everybody before you missed it by that much. This is Israel's problem, though. You go back to Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebirth of the nation, so to speak, as this rabbinically led society. You go back to the moving of the promises, away from the hope of a Messiah, away from the hope of the prophet, away from the hope of the garden with the seed to crush the woman, and towards the hope for a nation, for a people. And once that gets distilled in, or instilled, it then distills down through history. And, well, this is what my grandfather taught, and this is what my father taught, and this is what I'm teaching, and this is what you're going to teach. Now hand that down, generation after generation, century after century, and soon what becomes orthodoxy? What was biblical? No. Forget the, forget the Bible standard. That's why when you get to Jesus's day, this is why it was so important that Jesus taught as one having authority. Jesus isn't standing up there quoting rabbi this and rabbi that or scribe this and scribe that. He's quoting to you Bible verses. What did the rabbis in the synagogues do? Well, this is what Rabbi so-and-so said, and this is what he did, and this is what Rabbi so-and-so did, and this is what he did, and this is what this means. And you get far enough down the way, and what Bible verse were we talking about again? I've, I've forgotten. I know all the rabbis, but I don't remember what Moses actually wrote. And that's part of the problem. The knowledge has been corrupted. Why? Why did humanity corrupt the knowledge? What does sin corrupt first? everything else. We corrupt knowledge because we, in our sin, are corrupt. Which again, what's the cure, Christian? Who are you? Why are you? So you're corrupt. You've looked at yourself. You've looked in the mirror. You've seen your problem. Now where do you look? You've taken your look at yourself. You now take one of your 10 looks at Christ repeatedly. Look away from yourself. Look to what Christ has accomplished. This is why you need chapters 1 through 8 to make sense of 9, 10, and 11. So let's continue verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. See, what could possibly go wrong when you become the Savior? I mean, that couldn't possibly go badly for anyone ever, anywhere, could it? Nah, no, we, we got this. No, see the point we just made about sin corrupting what? Everything and everyone. This is why the warnings in Scripture, Jesus, um, Jesus tells them, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. This is that rabbinic history I was just telling you about. This is the problem. So because they don't know God's righteousness, but they still try to find righteousness, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Keep in mind why that's so important. Salvation by grace through faith is not something Paul cooked up in a lab when he wrote Romans. It's the distillation of the entirety of biblical history. It is taking what God has been doing back since the garden and applying it to the church in Rome. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I've warned you about this before. This is where the modern, unbelieving Bible scholar tries to drive a wedge where one shouldn't exist, is they take the law of Moses, and they take Leviticus, and they take Exodus, and they take Genesis, and they go, see, 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 this is, this is rote. This is laws. Do this, don't do that. There's smiting of peoples, you know, all the, all, that, all the good Old Testament stuff when you think of wrath and destruction, all that stuff. And then there's these prophets, and you get this, you get some dude in a suit from like Harvard and he's like, he starts describing Jeremiah and Isaiah to you and he starts making him sound like some hippie, you know, with some patchouli oil in his pocket. He'd be like, no man, God's just trying to love you and redeem the people. And this is, it's all about your heart. And stop, stop. They're not different messages. When God gives the law, who does he give it to? A people that he has redeemed from Egypt. The people that left Egypt but were unredeemed, what happens to them? They die in the wilderness. This is what Jude tells you. They are judged by the tribe of Levi. The ground swallows them whole when they rebel against Moses. You see Miriam and Aaron turn um, leprous as judgment from God when they speak against Moses the prophet. You actually see the working out of God as he's redeeming a people, judging sin. What the prophets are calling you to is not some hippy-dippy Jesus where it's a different message. They're calling you to a right understanding of how the law is applied. So stop. How is the law supposed to be applied then? Okay, Christian, how do you apply it? What's, what's the end goal of the law? What does it look like in your law, in your life when you've rightly applied the law? Describe it for me. Is there a summary anywhere in the Bible that might tell you what it would look like to, to follow the law? Would it look like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself? This is why, what is Jesus' commandment to you? That you would love one another. Why? Because that's the summation of everything. So redeemed Christian living in 21st century America, it's 21st century, right? I always get confused every time we switch a new year. Um, in 21st century America, we don't stone false prophets because that was the law for Israel. And you're not ethnic Israel in that land. You don't get to do that. If you stone prophets, what's going to happen to you? The government that God has established for you is going to put you in a jail well, maybe. If you do it in Chicago, you might get away with it. But <laughs> You were thinking it. I just said it. It's okay. <laughs> Depends on what the bail is, right? Anyway. <laughs> Depends on who you are. I'm I've, not gambling, but I'm willing to bet that if I did it, there would be bail. Just, just saying. Just saying. So anyway. 
You, so you don't get to stone prophets. Okay, so how do you apply this, Christian? Well, what's the principle behind it? You stone the prophets because you purge the evil from among you. You remove it from the nation so that it does not corrupt and lead the people astray. Christian, this is the church discipline section of the program, right? Is the false teacher comes in, you go, no, no, false teacher, throwing the things and the screaming and the whole bit. Why? So that you would remove them from the congregation so they will not lead people astray. You would mark them as an unbeliever and then you would refute the false teaching because while you do not get to kill them in your legal system, you do get to kill the idea. And you get to make it a slave of Christ by proclaiming the truth rightly. Now they have been marked and we know, don't follow that guy. Don't follow that teaching because it diverts from Christ in his true way. And this is what we should do. And now we have protected the people and we've applied the law. We have loved the Lord our God by upholding his doctrine and we have loved our neighbor as ourselves by making sure he doesn't go to hell with the false teacher. Go team. This is a win. This is how you apply the law and lead it rightly. Now, that's not you establishing your righteousness. That's you doing what you know you're supposed to do because the Holy Spirit's kicking you in the rear end to make you do it. That's what the prophets are calling Israel back to, to call out to the Lord that he would change their hearts, that he would redeem them, that he would usher in the new covenant so that this redeemed people would love their Lord, the Lord their God, and then love their neighbor and follow him rightly. That's why the prophets sound so different from the law and the commands because they're calling you back to the right understanding, not a change of life from the outside in. Can't be done. Can't be done. Fake it till you make it does not work in this world. If you don't believe me, go on a diet. And I'm not even kidding. This is, this is what we do all the time. I'm, it's, it's the first week of January. I'm going to be good today. Because <laughs> what happens tomorrow? Uh-huh. You, you know it. I know it. I don't have to say it. They're calling you back to not that change, not the one that works to the inside, but the one that works from the inside. That's why Micah can say things with, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? You better, it was commanded. With yearling calves? You better, it was commanded. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? He should. He called for those sacrifices. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It's the picture of the garden. Cain and his sacrifice are rejected. Abel and his sacrifice are accepted. The problem is not on the outside. The problem is the heart. So they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why? Because Jesus is the answer to every question in your Bible. What Israel gets wrong is the problem that humanity still has to the states, that law-gospel distinction. Give me my list. Be honest. You're comfortable here. Give me my list. Tell me what I should do. Tell me what I shouldn't do. Give me my marker so I can check them off. And then tomorrow, give me a new list so that I can just start all over again. And this is easy, right? This is simple. Again, if your Bible was going to cover every possible scenario and tell you what you should and should not do in each scenario, how big would this book actually be? Yeah. We'd be lugging this thing in on a truck. Be like, all right, knock out that wall so we can back in our Bible for the reading this morning. I mean, that's, that's not going to work. You can't even cross-reference that. Imagine trying to cross-reference that without Google. We struggle with Google. Hey, Google, what's, what's third Romans? I mean, that's what would happen to your Bible. Instead, you're given what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because you've been given a Holy Spirit who is leading you, who is guiding you, who is bringing to your remembrance what you need in the moment. Why? Because your heart has been changed so that 
you will actually live in accordance with what God has commanded and what, what God is doing. You have been changed, therefore you are different, therefore you think differently. Remember, this is always the, the pattern for changed life. Change the heart so that I change what I want out of life. When I change what I want out of life, I change what I think about. When I change what I think about, then I start changing what I actually do because I am now living in accordance with my desires. This is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. This is the work of sanctification. Today, your desires that you're working on, that the Holy Spirit is kicking you about, might be different from a year from now because you know what? The sin you're going to deal with a year from now, you're not ready for now. You've got different problems today. When it's time to deal with that one, we'll deal with that one and we'll rejoice over the victory. But in the meantime, you are being spurred by God because he has redeemed you. You are no longer living according to a checklist, but you are living according to the principle of what? Love and honor God in what? Everything. Where? Everywhere. With who? Everyone. This is why I always tell you, you know when you sin. You know when you've gone astray. It's not like it was an accident. It's not like you fell off and you're like, oh, how did I get here? You knew what you were doing. You knew why you were doing it. You knew where you were doing it. You knew all of that, and you went through every single roadblock. So now what do you do? Okay, you remember that you're corrupt in your sin. You've looked at yourself. Now do what again? Go back. Look at Christ. See the accomplishment and start again. You, re you repent of that sin. Start over. Kill that sin with fire because guess what you're working on today? The one the Holy Spirit just showed you. And that's the one that's a problem. That's the one we deal with and that's where we move. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what Christ was always accomplishing. And this is what he is accomplishing until he comes back. You can go to places like Galatians 3. For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is the accomplishment. This is the work. You're no longer looking for the list. You're looking for the honoring of God. Now you're asking, so why do we keep looking for a list? Well, because you're not perfect. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect, and the sinful flesh wants what the sinful flesh wants. And be honest, it's a little scary to go out into the world and say, okay, here's what you do. Love people, and then serve and honor God in everything that you do. What does that look like, man? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have your neighbors. I don't have your kids. I don't have your coworkers. I don't have your boss. I, I have no idea how to tell you to honor God in that moment. This is why you have to be thinking, why you have to be evaluating, understanding who you are in that moment and what is the thing that honors God. In other words, you have to be about the work of God. When? Yes. I've told you, when can you be faithful? The only time in human history you can be faithful is when? Now. You can't be faithful five minutes ago. That's gone. You can't be faithful five minutes from now. You can be faithful now. You haven't built a DeLorean. I don't have a flux capacitor. It's not going to work that way. You can be faithful now. Now, as you are faithful now, five minutes from now, five years from now, whatever it may be, you will be faithful because you know what you're doing? You're being faithful now, seeking how do I honor God in the here and now. Now, that's complicated because, but I want to worry about stuff, and I want to make plans, and I, and I get that. Make godly plans. Try to lay things out. Recognizing what? What's the warning from James? You can make them all you want, 
Doesn't mean anything you want to happen is actually what's going to happen. So what do you do in that moment? You're faithful to God, who is actually the one ruling and reigning over all things. That's the reminder from chapter 8 that he's bringing all things to submission in his kingdom. Why? Because chapter 9, he's the one who's ruling and reigning over all things. So as you get to chapter 10 and you see this and you remember what the distinctions are, you go, okay, I got this. I can be faithful in the here and now because I can trust the God who has been commanding creation to continue commanding creation, who has accomplished all that he has promised, to continue accomplishing what he has promised and bring me to a good end. And if I don't like it in the here and now, I get that. But at the same time, I recognize that it is God who is at work and God who is redeeming. So you have to keep up with the computer for a second because we are, our computer clicker had to take a break. So <laughs> verse 5, you'll have to flip in your Bibles. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. Now, where does he write such a thing? Well, he writes it in Leviticus. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And by the way, you actually living by the statutes you're supposed to keep and the ones that you hold others to, Moses in Leviticus isn't the only one who writes that. What did Jesus tell you, Matthew 7? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. I know that's the one that the world knows, but we got to keep reading. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And by the way, Jesus isn't the only one who says that. Uh, James applies it. James 2. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So, I have to be consistent. I have to actually live up to the things I'm holding people to. Now, this is really good news for you, Christian. I'm, I'm doing my Johnny Depp thing again. Sorry. Why is this good news? That you're called to consistency, to maintaining a good standard, and the standard you bring out into the world is a standard the world should be expected to be able to hold you to. Why should that be something to celebrate to you? Aren't we called hypocrites all the time? Yes, because we misexplained the message. What should be the message to the world? That sin is real, it is corrupted all, and we all fall short of the glory of God. But by his grace and mercy, we have been redeemed, are being redeemed, and will one day be redeemed by his grace, by his love, and by his accomplishments, so that in all things we praise the one who has saved us. I am not good. Not in and of myself. I am good only as I am in Christ. And I only do good as I worship and serve the creator who has redeemed me. That's supposed to be the message. We get accused of being self-righteous because we look at them and go, can you believe these people are sinning like this? First of all, what should always be the answer to that question? Can you believe the world did dot, 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 dot? The answer should be what? Yes. Yes, I can believe that the world did that. Why can I believe that the world did that? Because I've read my Bible and I recognize that sin corrupts what? Everything and everyone in every way. So when I look out in the world, I go, yes, I am, not, I, am, I am disappointed. But I am not shocked that they have corrupted justice, that they have corrupted the law, that they have tried to change the way we view ourselves and our relationships. Why would I be shocked at this? They've, you mean sin corrupted something and has tried to use it as a cudgel against Christians so that they would try and undermine Scripture? That would never happen in human history. What's the original lie? Did God really say? Everything else has just been a takeoff on that. So let's answer this question quickly because we've done this before and we don't need to go for 10 miles into it. So why is there that law then? If it can't actually change the people and you need to change the people first to keep it, what, what purpose does it serve functionally? Always remember you have not one, not two, but three, count them three uses of the law. First use, it's a mirror. 
It shows you your sin. How do you know? This is what Paul was arguing earlier in Romans. How did I know about coveting until the law said what? Don't covet. Coveting is bad. And then Paul was like, I didn't realize I was doing that. It's, it's a mirror. It now shows you your sin so that you would run to Christ. Second use, civil. The law actually restrains some evil by making it illegal. And I know that sounds silly to say because you look at the world and go, nah, not for everybody. But be honest. Just stick a speed limit sign out on a highway. What's going to happen to most people? You're going to slow down. You might have gone 100 without the sign, but when I put 55 out there, even the guy that was going to go 100, what does he do? Eh, 65, 70 maybe. And how many people are going to sit there and go, I will not go 55. I will set the cruise at 54. And see, look look how legal I am. <laughs> see, you're laughing. Some, some of you are. <laughs> Don't point. That's not nice. It's like that little old lady that all you can see are her knuckles. Yeah, I see knuckles, like looking through the steering wheel on the dashboard. No, there's a civil use. It actually does restrain some evil because not every corrupt human being is as corrupt as they possibly can be all the time. And then, of course, the third one is that it actually reveals your righteousness. What does it look like to honor God and love your neighbor? This goes back to the prophet example. By actually following the precepts that God has laid down and marking the false teaching and calling it out and making sure that people are aware of it and that people are not following it, this is actually a righteous step. God has told you how you honor and serve him in this world, which is again why James continues. It doesn't just tell you if you've missed the law at one point, you've lost all of it. He keeps going. For he who said do not commit adultery has also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery but do not commit murder, I'm sorry, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is where we don't do a good job in the public square. By the way, I'm talking to me too, because what we do a great job in the public square very often is making sure that everybody knows what we have told them is wrong. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity struggles in the public square, because the gospel is not built for sound bites. It never really has been, it never will be. Like, what's, what's the scourge on Christianity as far as I'm concerned? You should know this. Coffee cup theology. We take one Bible verse and we stick it on a coffee cup and people are like, this is my verse and I love it. And like, but that's not what it means. Why is that bad? Sometimes it's not, it's not always bad. Sometimes it's okay. But why is that a problem? Because we lose the context, we lose the message, and we've tried to distill it down to one little soundbite and one little snippet. Well, when you go out into the world and we get the cable TV news system and we have the attention span of a gnat because something more entertaining is going to be on my phone in five minutes, it's really hard to actually have a conversation and explain the why and the how. I've always remembered the Love him or hate him, but I was watching an argument. It just turned into an argument between, I don't remember who it was with, but Doug, Doug Wilson was having an argument with someone. And the, the woman he was arguing with kept cutting him off. And he had a great line. And he stopped. He goes, I frequently have thoughts that require more than one sentence to express. <laughs> and she kind of stopped like, I think I've been insulted. I'm like, you, you have been insulted. <laughs> because every time he would say one little sentence, she'd interrupt him and throw something in there and then look at him like, huh? And it's like, no, no, see, I'm actually trying to make a point. You're not. <laughs> but why does he have thoughts that require more than one sentence to express? Because the gospel's complicated. You have to actually get people lost before you can get them saved. And you have to explain to them what the problem is and what sin is because they've lied to themselves for so long. And this is where the law is helpful and where it is also complicated and where we fail in the squares because we go out with the first use, which is, ah, 
hammer. And when you go out into the public with a hammer, what does everything look like? A nail. And you do what? And we forget the other part of this, that yes, we've made them look at themselves. Yes, we've shown them their sin. Now we have to do what? Show them Christ. And that's a lot harder. This is one of the reasons why public discourse becomes so difficult for the Christian. Why I tell you, where should your first ministry be? At home, in the places you have influence, where you go to work, where you go to the grocery store, that that person you talk to. These are the places you have influence. It's not the only way it can be done, but it is the way throughout history that it has primarily been done. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. I'm going to pause right here because this is kind of the middle of a quote. But before we get to the quote, there's a riddle that Paul is actually building on. It's in Proverbs 30. Surely... I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Now, if I didn't tell you that was from Proverbs, oh, this is fun. If I didn't tell you that was from Proverbs, and I asked you to pick a book of the Bible, that came from. What does that honestly sound like? It sounds like Job, doesn't it? God questioning Job. Basically, God for four chapters going, who do you think you are? Like, seriously, man, get your butt up here. I mean, that's basically four chapters of God to Job. That's what Proverbs is doing here. What's, What's the point? It's a connection. God asks those questions because it reveals what about Job? Your tininess, his eternality, your lack of knowledge, his wisdom. What is Proverbs doing? The same building, the same idea. Sure, If you're going to learn, surely you know you've ascended into heaven. You've, you've descended down from heaven to explain to God. Now you get Jesus. Why can Jesus tell you about God? Because he teaches and tells you about what he has seen and what he knows. He is the right prophet who explains God because he is the one who has seen God as Moses saw God face to face. He is the one who will explain him. So who has ascended into heaven as the people's great high priest to make sacrifice for them and offer their prayers? This is Christ. Who has descended into the earth? Who has crossed the sea, the abyss, so that he would deliver his people? And bring them before the Father. This is, what Paul, this is why Paul is quoting this. It's immediately trying to get you to look to Jesus. Now there is, a, there is more to this quote. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So now he's connecting back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to us to get it, to make us hear that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for, for us, to get it for us, to make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. So Moses told that to the Israelites, that you know that what God has told you is something that you can do. It is not far away. It is before you. The writer in Proverbs is doing the same thing. He's connecting that idea so that you would go back. Oh, Moses gave that to the people. But now the, the, the writer in Proverbs is expanding on that, talking about his son from the Most High, who's going to explain this, who's going to give wisdom. Paul is now quoting this to tell you what? 
verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. See, that sovereign God of chapter 9 is the saving God of all of human history. And as he is changing and redeeming his people, what do they do? They actually respond. They are actually changed. This is why those judgments on Israel in the wilderness were so important to see. Because it's a people brought up out of the land of Egypt who have not been redeemed. What is their fate? What happens to the people who don't get on the ark? What happens to the people who don't flee Sodom and Gomorrah? What happens when you don't believe in the exodus? What happens when you take from the treasures of the cities when you are not supposed to? It's the judgment of God. Now, again, I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you this again. You see God delivering his people. Look for the judgment upon sin. You see God judging sin. Look for the deliverance of his people. This is the work that God has been doing because God is redeeming and delivering his people from what? From the midst of sin, from its presence and from its power, where they live daily. There's, you, there's nowhere in the Bible where you look at the people. Okay, there's one place in the Bible where you can look at the people, but that's the only place, and go, look, look, it's just so perfect and pristine. Oh, I can't believe they got this wrong. Outside of the garden, every other person has been in what kind of a world? Yeah. It's not like sin is just over there on the other side somewhere. It's everywhere. It corrupts everything. This is why I joke with you guys when the old, in the Old Testament when we're reading. I do this on Wednesday nights in Genesis. It's like, oh, somebody got one right. <laughs> Be, because it's a miracle almost that somebody actually believed God and trusted and did what they were supposed to do. Because let's be honest, start thinking through your Old Testament. What's more regular? Humanity believing in God and doing what they're supposed to do or going astray and, you know, running off the rails as quickly as they can go. Yeah, so when someone gets it right, it's like, yay, celebrate that. Put the gold star on that chapter, you know, put the bookmark down and be like, let's read that one again when I'm in a bad mood. This is the hope. This is the reminder, though, that in the midst of that world, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the questioning people, we have a Savior who has come down. We have a Savior who has ascended to the right hand. We have a Savior who has crossed the sea, who has accomplished everything that needs be done for his people. That's why he could tell them what? Uh, John 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for Christ is with me. What did he tell Nicodemus in John 3? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And what does it look like? See, let's put this in perspective. Moses had that faith, but Moses didn't make it into the land. And yeah, he was a little bitter about it. But Moses doesn't argue with God. That's a faith and a trust. To recognize the right judgment of God and to still lead the people, to still give them the information of Deuteronomy, to still be the good prophet who honors God even when your world has not gone perfect. Joshua is one of the spies going into the land. Imagine going and seeing the land after everything that God has seen, knowing that God is going to give us this land. And then you come back and the other spies are like, I don't know, man. Those dudes are tall. <sighs> I mean, come on. Did you see them? I mean, just imagine for a minute you're Joshua arguing with these guys, trying to convince the people 
what does that, I mean, at some point, don't you just want to look at people, you know what, fine, don't go into the land. I'm going without you. Be that way. But that's the faith of Joshua, to actually love the people enough to try to convince them, to talk to them, to argue for God, to be Caleb, the other good spy into the land, who then goes with all of these people to conquer all of these cities and all of this territory, and then, <laughs> and then the computer wakes up, and then shows up looking at Joshua when he's 80-something years old. He's like, um, me and my kids need to go conquer our city. Are you good with that? Yeah, we're going to go kill some guys. Have fun. <laughs> I mean, 80-something years old. I'm going to go off into battle. We're going we're gonna to go conquer if the Lord allows it. That's what the faith actually looks like in the midst of a sinful world. It's not perfect. It's not great. But it is faithful. It is trusting. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Yes, it does. It says so in Isaiah 28. So what? Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to those who call on him. Yes, that's part of the so what. That salvation hasn't changed. That the salvation by grace through faith in the garden is a salvation by grace through faith for Noah, for Abraham, for David, for everyone, for the Romans, for you, for as many as God will call to himself until he calls us home and brings down his kingdom. That's the hope. That's the function. God has and always has had a people. They are his redeemed people. The ones who trust in him who love neighbor because he has changed their heart and love and serve God because he has shown them his grace and his mercy. And that's why this ends at verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because that's been the promise from the beginning. See, well, a great example of this. I always joke, if you were Peter on Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down, spin the Rolodex of your brain. You ready? Start spinning. I know you know what happens, but just start spinning. You get one message what book of the old testament are you running to because like i know me i'm going to the garden i'm going to the picture of the ark you know maybe the work of the crossing of the red sea peter's awesome joel too i mean nobody in this room would have picked joel if left to their own devices i will display wonders in the sky and on the earth blood fire and columns of smoke the sun will be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the lord will be delivered for on mount zion and in jerusalem there will be those who escape as the lord has said even among the survivors who calls i'm sorry whom the lord calls that's where you run to? That's the picture you want to give them? Yes, because it's a reminder of what? That wherever God is at work, he is redeeming his people. And how will we know who his people are? Oh, I don't know. That might be how. That they would call upon God and that he would deliver them because they are his. That they would love him and serve him and honor them and care about neighbor. This is the command that Christ has given. It's not a new command. Not, it's, it's new as they understood it. It's not new as the Old Testament presented it. This is the hope. This is the accomplishment. This is what Paul wants to build up. Now, why does Paul want to build this up? This is where we lay a stage for next week for you. Paul has to lay this out because, let's be honest, about five minutes from now, what are we going to return to? Everything that Pastor Michael just said are our own natural assumptions. <laughs> it's okay. I return to my assumptions too. That's why I have to keep reading. Now, what does that do to us? 
we there's a way that seems right. There's a way that we that we build upon ourselves, and we think that's the right way, and we start interpreting everything through that. That's not evaluating. That's not thinking. That's not living in a way that honors God, because we are no longer actively living in the world. It's passive. You're drifting about. We covered this. Don't do that. It's bad. Ooh, I haven't done this in a while. Drifting about in the world is dumb. What's the rule? Don't do dumb dumb things. When is that rule in effect? Always. That's what making sure. Okay, good. Have to make sure Jada wears the hoodie. (laughs) That matters because as you live through your world, you start getting confronted with the sin of the world. You get confronted with the difficulties of the world, with the hard questions. And the default is to go back to that drifting, to go back to what we were. You can't. You are redeemed. You have looked at yourself. You look at Christ. Now know. Know what? Who Christ is. What he has accomplished. That he has redeemed us from that futile way of life. And he has set us to work in his kingdom. And that I evaluate and look at the things of this world through the lens of what pleases and honors God first and foremost. So that I may testify to his goodness and to his grace. So that as I have been saved and as I have been built up in his kingdom, I am now building up his kingdom by either adding to it or strengthening those who are a part of it. This is the daily work of loving neighbor, of serving God. And this is the work that Paul is trying to get the Romans towards, but they've got to see their world rightly first. And that's what he's building through. Starts with what? Who God is. Sovereign, ruling, redeeming his people. What kind of a people? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, a broken and sinful people. But by his grace, chapters 4 and 5, and by the work of Christ, he has saved them and brought them into his communion, so that as they live, even in spite of how they live now, chapters, what, six and seven, because of the work of Christ, chapter eight, they are redeemed and secure in his kingdom, so they will recognize his work as the people of God, so that as they live, they will recognize that as they call upon him, he will redeem, and as they live for him, he will come through on all that he has promised them, promised them because they know who he is and what he has done. Let's pray.